we know that we are compelled by Christ to move beyond just these four walls as a church. And we want to be a church that continues to look beyond our walls with the love of Jesus to bless the socks off this community. And as a church, we feel led to be a church that is for the good of our city. Uh, my name is Chris Sturgeon, and um, some people out there maybe know who I am, but uh, maybe you don't. So uh, in a previous life, I was on staff at this church. Um, I transitioned off staff about nine months ago, uh, which means I've, I've been gestating this sermon for exactly that amount of time. It's about the same as giving birth, I think. Um, Normally, I sit right there, like I'm in this section, but today I'm up here, so that's fun. Uh, it's great to be uh, up here with all of you. I have a question. Uh, who in this crowd would consider yourself to be a competitive person? Actually, raise your hand. Yeah, a few. Okay, uh, keep your hand up if you might consider yourself to be overly competitive. Yeah. Anybody sitting next to someone who didn't raise their hand and you're kind of looking out of the side of your eye being like, you are a problem, yeah? Yeah, yeah you only find out from, from the people who know and love you most. Um, I have been told that I can be overly competitive at times. Um, I like to think that that's an endearing thing about me, but no one else seems to think that. Uh, but recently I found a new outlet for this competitive side of me. So who out there plays pickleball. Huh? Yeah. Holy smokes. It is like so fun. And I am out of control. Like totally out of control. I found myself getting in like way too far, way too deep, way too fast, where I'm like spending way too much time watching like YouTube videos to figure out how to improve my third shot drop so that I can get into a dink battle at the kitchen. Like eight people know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a problem. I just bought what's called a paddle eraser. It's apparently, I mean, it looks like it's a piece of cut up gym floor that you wave over your paddle and it magically makes you better. I don't know if I'm better yet. Um, and this all came to a head for me on Thursday because this past Thursday was kind of like the Super Bowl for uh, somewhat pathetic 40 year old suburban dads because it was the playoffs for the Lafayette Parks and Recreational Intermediate Doubles Pickleball League. <laughs> so as you can imagine, I was under a lot of pressure. I was fired up, but I was ready to show up. And so I get down there. My partner's name is also Chris. Uh, we're the Chris's. We have, uh, we got custom screen printed shirts as one does. Um, and uh, it, it went very poorly, actually, to be candid. Uh, we really got it handed to us in the first match, which then bumped us into the loser's bracket, where once again, we lost fabulously. Um, but you'll be proud of me, I didn't let it show. I really covered up the turmoil I was feeling inside. Or at least that's what I thought until my, my playing partner had to ask his wife to ask my wife to ask me if I was okay. <laughs> um, I guess I let a little more of it out than, I, than you might have suspected. And this is all because I lost a couple of matches in a game I literally had never played until two months ago. I have to confess that this part of me doesn't really serve me well in life. This isn't really a helpful thing. It, it drains joy, it steals fun, it adds pressure, and it just oozes out anxiety. And that's what happens to the people around me. So can you imagine what's going on inside of my heart? 
And listen, the way that I overreact to a rec league intermediate pickleball loss is a fairly innocuous example, but I do think that it is indicative of something in my nature that may just be a part of all of human nature that desires to have more in everything, bigger, better in everything. I want to expand. I want to be significant. I want credit. I want admiration. I want to win in every part of my life. I just want more all of the time. We're in the second week right now of a series called Fan or Follower. And really we're trying to ask the question, hey, am I just a kind of a fan of Jesus? Like I'd wear his concert t-shirt, but that's about as far as it goes. Or am I actually engaging in the daily practices that help to change me into the kind of person who can truly follow wherever Jesus leads? And this part of my nature that I'm talking about, that maybe is a part of all of our natures, um, part of me needs to win, this part that needs to win, that needs to self-aggrandize, I think it's maybe the single biggest obstacle in my life to following Jesus. But it's, it's an obstacle in a sneaky way. It's not because it gets me to forego following Jesus and walk in a different direction. It's that it masks the way. And I find myself to be off base without even knowing it. Our primary reading for today is going to come uh, from the Bible in a book called The Gospel of Luke. There are four stories in the Bible that are simply a life story of Jesus written by different people. One was written by a guy named Luke. This is that one. In chapter 9, verses 23 through 27, this is what Luke writes. This is Jesus speaking. Then he said to them all, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and daily follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? So before we dive into what I see in that passage, I want to give you some context. Uh, we're going to take a quick run through everything that happens in chapter 9 of Luke. This is kind of the middle point. So I want to talk about what happened before that and then what's going to happen right after it. Because the whole thing is thematic. It's kind of uh, all building up to the same purpose. And to be candid, chapter 10 is also a part of this theme. I've chosen to leave that out because you all probably want to get home before dinner. Um, and I have a tendency to get wordy. Like I said, I like everything to get bigger. And, and before I dive in, I just want to say a big thanks to the men's Bible study uh, at this church. We meet every Tuesday morning from 7 to 8, just on the other side of those curtains. And we have been reading through Luke, and we go like painfully slow, but it's beautifully slow. Um, and getting to spend a really lengthy amount of time in this has helped me to pick up on larger themes and motifs within the scripture. And so uh, all you guys out there, if you ever want to come, seven to eight, open invite. There's no homework in between. We'd love to have you. Um, I'm really grateful for the group of guys who meet me there uh, on Tuesday mornings. So chapter nine in Luke marks this major transition in the story. In chapters one through eight, Jesus does everything. The ministry is entirely his. He does all the preaching. He does all the healing. He does all the miracles. It's all about Jesus. He has some people following around, but up until this point, they mostly just watch. In chapter nine, Jesus decides to start inviting other people into this ministry that he has been building. And that is a big change. Here's what's cool. These disciples, these followers, they step into it. 
it goes really well, and then they immediately go too far and start screwing everything up. Um, so this is what happens. First thing that happens, very beginning of chapter nine of Luke is Jesus gets his 12 closest followers, the people that we know as the 12 disciples. And he says, I'm sending you guys out on your own. You're going to tell people that the kingdom of God is at hand. You're gonna heal people and you're gonna cast out demons, but there's a catch. You can't take anything with you. No extra clothes, no extra shoes. You can't even bring your wallet. You're going out totally broke. This is generally not an advised way to begin a journey. But there's a reason for it, right? And we're going to get back to this later. But Jesus is teaching them a lesson about reliance. He say, you're going to go out here and do this, but you're not going to rely on your own abilities, your own capabilities. You're not going to rely on yourself. You're going to rely on me. And it's going to work if you trust me. And they go out and they do it. And he's right. They come back. They're pumped, right? Next thing that happens is one of Jesus' greatest hits. It's on every greatest hit album. This is the famous feeding of the 5,000 story, right? But instead of it just being Jesus who feeds these people, he invites the disciples into the process. They are a part of pulling off this amazing miracle. Next thing that happens is there's this guy named Peter. He's one of the disciples. He's kind of like the leader of the disciples. And he's going to be the first person to declare that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is a big deal. This is a really big deal because the Jewish people have been waiting for this prophesied figure who they thought was going to be this, bring about this restoration of the greatest period of the monarchy in Israel, of David's kingdom, that he was gonna come back and he was gonna be this glorious shining example who would raise an army, who would defeat Rome and would return their country to their highest, highest days. And so Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right, I am, but. And then he dramatically redefines what the Messiah is. It is not going to be like, like Peter has this image of like the very person, the embodiment of the bigger, better, more. This vision that we have that everything is supposed to grow and expand and be powerful and lifted up. And Jesus redefines it. So the disciples, when they say this, they're expecting this glorious stud, right? Jesus says the Messiah is going to do four things. This is what he says. Uh, The Messiah will suffer greatly will be rejected, will be killed, and on the third day will be raised. This is what leads right into our main passage for for today, this part where Jesus talks about, hey, we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And this is the point where the disciples start to get everything wrong. This is what happens immediately after this point. Remember, they started serving. It's been going well. Jesus has now redefined it as we're not moving to the top of the hierarchy here. This is what the disciples followed up with. First, he catches them in an argument amongst themselves about who's the greatest. I'm the best. No, I'm the best. And Jesus walks in and says, pulls a little child in. He says, hey, in my kingdom, the least of you is the greatest. This is what happens right after that. So they've been told that. You think maybe they get it. Then the disciples come to him a little bit later and say, hey, Jesus, we're over there. We saw this guy. He was casting out demons. You know, the exact same thing you do and that you told us to do. And so we said, stop. He's not in our club. He, he, like, and I imagine Jesus is kind of shaking his head and be like, oh, me. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, it took, it took a second. Yeah. Why would you do that? He says, listen, if somebody's not against us, they're for us. 
This isn't about you being in the exclusive club. This is about relieving people from the things that oppress them. Next thing that happens, this is the craziest one. They're, uh, they're traveling on their way to Jerusalem and they send a couple guys ahead to this village and uh, to get them pre like prepared to receive them. And this village says, you know what? We don't want Jesus in here. We're not about that. And so John comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, do you want me to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I imagine Jesus being like, what? No, we're just gonna go to the next village. What is wrong with you? Do you think you can do that? It actually says there that Jesus rebukes him and it's the same word that is used throughout Luke when Jesus rebukes a demon to cast it out of a person. His response is very harsh. Why would you call down fire? Well, because they slighted me and my ego has grown. And so this must be what I'm supposed to do. That's the context for our passage. It comes right in the middle of they've been invited to be part of the ministry. They're told this, and then their heads get huge. Essentially, they've been given a task. They've been put on a path, and then they have run way too far ahead. Uh, we were on a family hike a couple of weeks ago, and my kids are seven and 10, and they're with their cousins who are nine and five. Is that how old they are? That's my wife over there. Anyway, they're, they're small um, and, and they're like charging ahead. And without fail, every single time we came to a fork in the trail, they went the wrong way. Every single time, boldly, confidently, and dead wrong. That's, that's how they went. If we hadn't stopped them, if we'd let them lead, I would still be in the woods. That's how, that's how this was. I, like, I think this is, that describes the disciples in the story here. They're pretty excited and they run too far ahead. My kids who had never been on that trail before and had not spared a second glance for the trail map, they needed to follow the lead of someone who came, or they needed to follow the lead of somebody who knew what comes next. That's what the disciples need to do here. And I think the same is often true for me. And that is why I think Jesus has this saying, why this passage is situated here. So I'm gonna read it again to you. Then he said to them all, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves. I think that if this could have really sunk in for the disciples, it would have spared them all of these boneheaded mistakes. And I think the same may be true for us. I have kind of three major reflections on this passage, on this saying of Jesus. As I, as I read it and I ask, what does this mean for me in my life? Three things. Here's the first one. Jesus says daily. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. And I think it's really important that he says daily because it's Jesus making it clear that this call on our lives is not this singular call to martyrdom. It's not a singular act. Rather, it is a way of living that we are invited into, a way of living that is characterized by self-denial, by cross-bearing, and by following someone else's lead. 
Now, this was something that Jesus had given the disciples a crash course in at the beginning of chapter nine, when he sent them out on their own and he said, don't take supplies. You just go out and you count on me to provide everything you need. They go on the road without a penny in their pocket. I think Jesus wanted them to learn to rely on him and not on themselves, to seek the pursuits that he put in front of them and not their own. Um, personally, in my life, I have a dramatic overemphasis on self-reliance. I may be the single worst person in the whole world at asking for help. And I know some of you are thinking, no, that's my spouse. You're wrong. It's me. I am the worst. At it. Instead of asking somebody to help me on something I've never done before, I will, I'll figure it out and I'll spend twice as long to get results that are half as good. That's, that's how I work. And I have to, my wife is like the total opposite of me. She's like brilliantly capable of being open to asking questions and asking for help. And, um, and we've talked about this before and it's made me have to look inside and be like, why, why am I like this? And the truth is, for me, it is really scary to, uh, to think that somebody would know that I can't handle something on my own. It's scary for me to admit that I, I can't, I don't, I don't know how to do this. And that comes from this wound that I've carried for most of my life. Because I wasn't always, uh, a, you know, a 41-year-old with an overemphasis on a silly hobby. Um, at one time, I was a really lonely teenager who was trying to navigate some incredibly rough waters all on his own. And I, I do, I wanna start by saying, listen, before, my dad has passed away, but before he passed, he was a wonderful man. And my mom continues to be a wonderful woman and I am fortunate to have had parents who loved me very, very much. And I am so grateful to have been their son. But when I was 14 years old, our family was filled with chaos that came in the form of a divorce. And a lot of work with a really great therapist has helped me to reflect on that time and realize that the way that I coped in that moment was by shutting myself down and by not letting other people in. And I began to believe that if there was anything in this world that I needed, it was up to me to figure out what it was and how to get it. And that there was no one to help. That is a lot of pressure when you're 14 years old. And that is a really lonely way to live. And I, I can't help but to imagine that I'm not the only person in this room who has felt that way. Here's why I love what Jesus has to say here. When my, that, that lonely 14 year old that, that has always lived inside of me and probably always will hears that, this is what I hear. I hear they say, follow me. And that is something you can't do alone. It means that I'm not alone, that we are together. I hear Jesus saying that you don't have to be alone, that, that Jesus is saying, I will walk with you. And further, I hear Jesus saying that I don't have to figure out where I'm supposed to go. I don't have to figure out how to navigate these confusing trails in this place I've never been. I'm not alone in this world desperately trying to navigate something that is far beyond my ability. We are together. 
and he will show me the way if I agree to follow. And that does mean I have to put aside my desire to decide where I go. But I can be together if I follow Jesus. Here's the second thing, my second reflection on this passage. Uh, The second sentence says this, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world, but lose or forfeit themselves? The word for life used here in Greek is psyche. It is the uh, root word from which we get the word psychology. And while it can mean your, your physical like life, it tends to have a deeper meaning that's more about like your soul, the center of you, the totality of your personhood. And so it would not be inappropriate at all to translate that sentence like this. For those who want to save their self will lose themselves. And those who lose themselves for my sake will find themselves. And this gets at what I believe is one of the core principles of Christian spirituality. It's that I am the most fully me. I am the most human when I am submitted to God and when I am living within the world as it should and one day will be. When I am following Jesus on the way of the cross. Here's a way to look at it. Have you ever met somebody who was describing one of their most meaningful and joyful memories? One of these things that they would look back on and say, this was one of the most defining moments of my life. And it was an incredibly selfish story. Have you ever heard that? It'd be something like, yeah, and I, I took that piece of cake from that toddler and I ate it and it was delicious. And that was the best moment of my life. Probably not. Maybe you've never heard that. Have you ever heard somebody telling a story about an opportunity where they were able to truly serve, support, and lift up another person and you watch them light up as they tell that story? I love that, you know, we just had this this video about the Chief Hayes Project, the biggest one ever, the most people out there. You talk to anybody who goes on one of those projects, anybody who's ever been on a mission trip, anybody who's ever had the opportunity to sit in a hospital room when somebody got terrible news and be with them, They won't tell you that's an easy moment. They won't tell you it's a joyful moment maybe, but they will tell you that shaped me and brought meaning and purpose to my life in a way that nothing else ever had. I just got to to have one of these moments in my own life just a couple of weekends ago. Um, For many years before my family moved uh, here to Colorado, I was a middle and high school pastor out in California. And a couple of weekends ago, I had the opportunity to travel back out there and officiate the wedding for uh, one of the students that I was particularly close to there. And I kept telling her, um, I just don't think it's appropriate for me to officiate a wedding for an eighth grader. (laughs) And she kept telling me, Chris, I'm about to turn 27 and I just took the bar exam. I think it's okay. Um, To me, you're always always gonna be 14. Uh, But it feels like the... One of the biggest compliments I can receive in life to be invited to take on that space with somebody, for one of those kids to still want me in her life. Um, I believe very deeply that the kids who are coming up right now, that, that with every new generation, it gets harder and harder and harder to be a kid. 
And I will admit, I have very little patience for the people in my generation and those generations above me who like to speak disparagingly about young people because it has never been harder. And I got to grow up in a much simpler time. And listen, I, I spent a lot of years hanging out with students. And I know that when you sign up to serve in student ministries, you are, uh, in a sense, uh, setting aside your own self-interest. You are denying yourself when you decide, I'm going to be a friend and a guide and a mentor for these students while they are going through so much. And listen, there's some people in this room who volunteer in middle and high school ministry right here. And let's just like shout out to you guys. You are heroes. Like, it makes a dramatic difference, and I'm so proud of you. But here's one of the hardest parts when you do it. Sometimes you get a bunch of years out and you ask yourself, did that matter at all? Did it make any difference that I did all of that? All of that time spent. So for me, when one of those kids turns 27 and asks me to meet her fiance and do their premarital counseling and to stand up there at the altar with them while they say their vows, it is incredibly important and it means a ton. I brought um, a couple pictures from this wedding. So this first one here. Um, so in the middle, that's Sammy. Um, I didn't get the memo that we were supposed to do cute faces on this one, as you can see. Um, and also, that's my, my, my stunning wife, uh, Lindsay, right there. Um, so that's Sammy. Uh, in this next picture, this is me and Peter, her, her now husband. This is the moment that he is laying eyes on his bride in her dress for the first time. And he's all crying. But, but, and so he's really the main event. But look at me. Look at that goofy face, yeah? Can I tell you, in that moment, I am so happy. And in that moment, I feel as fully myself as it is possible for me to, to feel. Because that moment, it's like this fruition of years of loving and serving and caring about and supporting someone else. And this kid who I have loved since she was a child, who has met and found and picked this wonderful man is flourishing. And when she flourishes, I flourish too. Jesus's consistent message to his disciples is to seek the good of others first, to put their own self-interest aside and to serve. And when we give ourselves away like that, that is when we find out who we truly are. Here's my final observation. Jesus says that we are to take up our cross. It's hard for us to fully grasp what that, what is being said there because the imagery of the cross is very, very different in our age. At this time, the cross was not something anybody put on jewelry. You did not want to be associated with the cross. This was a repugnant instrument of cruelty and death and dehumanization. You did not adorn yourself with the cross. It was not a symbol to be proud of. It was something that brought shame. Jesus is describing the lowest of the low situation. See, Jesus describes a path that does not point upward. It's a path that points downward. And this is really countercultural. 
This is really counter to what we're told to do in life. And it is, it's against this fundamental part of me that wants to go up, that wants to get bigger. Uh, I told you at the beginning that I am a person who wants to win. I want everything that I do to be up and to the right, to grow, to expand, to be bigger, better, more, 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 more. And I want that because I believe it will reflect on me. I want to impress you. I want people to admire me. I want to do great things so that I will be seen as great. I mean, just, just think for one moment how amazing you would all think I was had I been able to truthfully tell you that I was the Lafayette Parks and Recreation Intermediate Doubles Pickleball Champion today. <laughs> You'd, people would be, hallelujah, I'm, I know it. And you see, like, this, this is where I get led astray. Because I tend to assign to the things in my life that succeed, that grow, that expand, I, I tend to assign that God must be in those things. And the things that go poorly, I tend to assume God must not have been there. Did you know that almost 80% of new church plants, new attempts to start a church, fail in the first four years? 80%, that is a lot. And if you ever talk to somebody who was part of a failed church plant, they will probably say something like this. They'll say, I was, I was so certain that God must, that, that this was what God had for me, that, this, that God told me to do this. And I guess I must, I guess I must have been wrong. But what, what if failed is the wrong word? What if four years was just all that was meant to be for that church plan? Back when I was in high school, um, I went to this big Christian youth convention thing called Acquire the Fire. Anybody else in my like age category know what that is? There's a couple hands, yeah. Uh, I was read that this guy who it turned out was really a terrible human as most gigantic Christian endeavors tend to, tend to reveal. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but I remember there's thousands of teenagers in this big convention center and they are getting us hyped up. I mean, they are pulling the emotional strings real hard and we're like jumping up and yelling. But then the rallying cry was that we were supposed to go out and be world changers. You, you, you are gonna go out and you are gonna change the world. And my oversized teenage ego loved that. The thought that I get to change the world. I am going to do that. I liked being told to go out and do great things because if I do great things, that means I am great. But that is not what Jesus said to do. And it is not what Jesus did. And maybe this is an edgy thing to say. I don't think Jesus calls us to do great things. I don't... I don't think our calling is to be great. Our calling is to be faithful to whatever it is that Jesus puts in front of you. To be faithful to that. Success as we define it is not a sign of God's leading. And failure as we, design, as we define it is not a sign of God's absence. Most church plants fail. Each of the disciples was martyred. Jesus died on a cross. 
All of those things are failures to the wisdom of this world, but they were victories in God's kingdom. Many years ago, uh, my wife um, faced a major health crisis and it was um, a crisis in such a way that it was not a given that she was going to survive. And in those times, we had some very good-hearted, well-intentioned people who loved us a lot who would come and they'd say, Lindsay, you're gonna be okay. God won't let anything happen to you. You are too special. They had really good intentions, but that is not true. Good people die. Sometimes they die young. Dreams fade. Hopes are dashed. We get knocked down. In this world, sometimes things die, and that's okay. How does that feel? Check your guts. How does that feel? Sometimes it feels better to think, no, everything is guaranteed to always be okay. That's not. But I can tell you this, if Lindsay were up here instead of me, she would tell you what I've heard her say many times, and it's this, that even had I not survived, it would not have changed who God is. It would not have changed the truth about the promises that God has given us. It is not our job to win all the time. It is not our job to do great things. That is God's job. Our job is to be faithful. Our call is only to one thing. It is to submit and to be obedient to whatever the thing is that God has put in front of you. To deny ourselves daily, to take up our cross and to follow him. To find contentment in faithfully working away in this little corner of God's kingdom that has been given to us. About a thousand years before Jesus spoke these words uh, that we've been talking through today, there was another man, a different man who was close to God's heart, who wrote out a description of what the faithful, a life of faithful att attention to Jesus could look like. That man's name was David. Uh, he wrote many of uh, what we have in the Old Testament that are called the Psalms. And in Psalm 16, um, he writes some words that I would like to read over you as a prayer to close our sermon today. So please receive this, receive these words as a gift and a reminder of what life with Jesus can be. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body also rests secure. For you do not give me up to Sheol or let your faithful ones see the pit. You show me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand, our pleasures evermore. Amen.